Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming back. Today's episode is part two of our discussion on M. Night Shyamalan's movie, Signs. As always, you don't have to have watched the movie in order to listen to the episode, but we always recommend it as we will never stray away from spoilers. Today, we're going to be talking about symbolism, music, and a lot about production. So let's get rolling. I'm your host, Audrey. And I'm your co-host, Cherie. So sit back, relax, and please don't silence your phone while we check your cinematic pulse. Okay, so Cherie, something that we needed to talk about last time and we missed was um, first impressions of Mm -hmm. this movie. Yes. And I definitely want to talk about that because I know that you definitely had some things to say. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So my first impression of this film was absolutely not ever going to see this film. No, I don't do aliens. I don't do scary. No, I was 10. I was 10 years old or about to turn 10 years old, I think, when this movie came out. And I remember seeing the trailer on TV paired with like I think the music had already been like made for this film and I was like Mm-mm, nope mm-hmm. not, no it's a no for me dog and my brother okay I know I need I need help understanding this like do you have you have like a fear of aliens yes like I had like funnily enough because you know I love astronomy not to be confused with astrology please look up the difference between those right two. two different two very different things my I love learning about space and outer space and things like that and now I the thought of aliens doesn't scare me unless of course they are trying to come like you know off us off us right unless um, they they be hostile yeah unless they be hostile um but <laughs> i had no like there was no way i was seeing this film my brother aaron was like super stoked to see this film because he loves alien films he loves any alien lore he just really is into it so he obviously went and saw this movie for his birthday and i was like i will not be seeing this movie on his birthday funnily enough what? okay when, hold on, I'm going to stop you again, because when did this happen? Why do you have a fear of aliens? I don't know, I just do. I just do. Why do people have a fear of heights? I don't know, they just do. Well, generally, I mean, getting into psychology here, generally there's something Some, that happened when yeah. you were younger that created a traumatizing experience. So, like, did you get abducted by aliens and I just don't know? I honestly, you know what, I think it was the Aliens film. Is that the film where the, like, snake worm thing it, comes out of someone's body? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alien with Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, I remember seeing, like, part of that film as a kid, and I saw that moment, and it traumatized me. I mean, to be fair, that is, especially for the time, and, like, special effects being what they were, that's absolutely terrifying. (laughs) I was not having it. So anything, like, even after that Independence (laughs) Day, didn't want to see that film. Science came out. And and there was, like, a ton of movies that started coming out about aliens, and I was like, "Mm mm-mm, why? Why are we doing this? Why is it Oh, yeah, we were very very into it in like the 90s 80s and 90s especially because because there were some crop circle hoaxes back Mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. and then of course you know you have several alien quote-unquote sightings there was obviously roswell back in the 50s um there was the new mexico alien sighting i think in like 92 or something i'm definitely not getting the date right on that but it was like a giant mass alien sighting that spanned several states uh, so there was a lot of hysteria in society about aliens right. at that point in time. So there were a lot of alien movies coming out. So I avoided those like the plague until I couldn't anymore. And then I was at a friend for her birthday the next year. 
And all the girls were like, we should watch a scary film. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I didn't care. Yeah. I didn't care at that point because no one had mentioned an alien film at this point. And then my friend was like, we're going to watch Signs. Oddly enough, because Joaquin Phoenix was attractive. <laughs> I mean. So I was like, we're going like, to watch okay, it. Okay, but I'll watch it for his eyes. <laughs> yeah. Someone's like, oh my gosh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix is really attractive. I was like, dang, they're not wrong. And so <laughs> I was like, oh my God, now I have to watch this alien film amongst girls and I'm going to cry because it's going to be terrifying. But oh, actually, no. I ended up loving it. Like once like watching it, you're like, oh, it's really, you know, there's no really scary points until you get closer to the end of the film. And even Right. Still, I mean, like there's like a few jump scares, right. I think, if you're, especially if you're watching it younger, mm-hmm. it, it can be a little bit jump scary. Like all of a sudden when they pan and there's just like a giant alien on the roof and mm-hmm. you're just like, oh, right. And so finally, after watching, I was like, I'm going to tell my brother this was a great film. He's going to be so proud of me. So first impression, obviously terrified just from the trailer. But once I watched it, I was like, dang, this is actually a really good film. Obviously, as a 10, 11 year old, I didn't know the deeper meanings of this film. I was like, this is a great alien film. But, you know, as an adult, it's a great film altogether. Love. Okay. So my first impression, I'm trying to remember how old I was when I first saw this movie. Cause I definitely would have been around your age. And I, so I was definitely, I was a kid when mm-hmm. it first came out. I didn't see this as an adult. I was, and it was like, absolutely my age. Like what age are we talking about? My okay, current so age a year my child older than age. you. Okay. Because you're only a year older than me. <laughs> How's 30 feel? Shut up. It's okay, I'm catching up to you here in a couple of months. It's fine. You're never going to catch up to me because I'm going to be 31 in a few months. I will, in fact, catch up to you. No, I won't. I won't ever because you're going to turn 31 before I do. We don't Mm -hmm. spend any time the same Mm -hmm. age, do we? We do not. Oh, that's sad. Perpetually winning that race. Anyway. Okay. Well, anyway. (laughs) So I was about the same age as you were when you first saw the movie. Yeah, I was like a kid. And... And it was, as as a child, and special effects being what they were at the time, this movie was terrifying for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the, the, the kitchen scene uh, in Ray Reddy's pantry with the alien where Mel Gibson chops off his fingers, oh, traumatizing mm-hmm. for me. Absolutely traumatizing for me. I was, like, freaked out by pantry doors for the longest time. Really? I was, like, convinced that, like, if I walked past a closed pantry door that, like, alien fingers were going to, like, curl up from the bottom. Absolutely not. Yeah, that would give me nightmares. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Because I definitely definitely saw this movie, like, around the same time as I saw, like, other M. Night Shyamalan movies. Because I remember I was living in the same house down in southern Indiana. And I had also seen The Village. And Mm -hmm. because it's, I mean, like when you're a kid, like it's supposed to be a thriller movie, not a horror movie. The thriller was like extra thriller for me as a child. (laughs) And I was like, I definitely had that that point in my life when like you need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, but there's a very dark hallway between you and the bathroom. And so you sprint as fast as Usain Bolt to get to that toilet. (laughs) Um, You now become an Olympic star. Yeah, like, there's no one around to see, but I definitely broke Guinness World Records with the speed with which I achieved bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) It was traumatizing for me as a kid. Watching it again as an adult, it's like, I feel like I have two first impressions. I have Mm -hmm. my kid first impression where I was terrified of it, but, like, it's a cool movie because, like, humans win in the end, okay? So, I definitely had... 
which is also interesting because I had one impression of it as a child where I processed it as exclusively what it was an alien movie right where a family survives an alien invasion and then i watched it again as an adult and there was definitely a significant amount of time between those two watches you know something like 15 to 20 years yeah same and the second time i watched then, it was 2020 and like watching it as an adult was a completely different experience than watching right it and then i can finally prior. see it from the other perspective of watching it as a movie that was incredibly symbolic about someone's faith. Right. You know? So I really got to experience both perspectives. And that's something that, um, you know, I'm, I'm mentioning this in the, the blurb for this episode is like this movie is such a hit because you really can enjoy it either way. Right. You can watch it for the subtext story and the story about a man's faith. And it's a fantastic movie and it's very moving. Or you can just watch it as an alien invasion movie where a family survives an alien invasion. And it's right. still great right. because it's different. You know, it's it's the alien invasion as told from one single family's perspective, you know, where they don't right. link up with the army to shoot somebody in the space to save the day. Honestly, and I know we talked about that, but that's honestly my favorite part of like this alien film is it's not a big, oh, the army and all the world powers work together mm-hmm. to defeat the alien. No, it's literally like a real life family trying to figure out oh my god how are we going to live through right. this invasion because that's i mean think about it, the majority of the world that if there was an alien invasion it would just be families trying to figure out oh my god what mm-hmm. are we gonna do let's go get some toilet paper yeah let's go get some toilet paper it's oh, tin foil. i'm still traumatized i managed to get some i was not reduced to coffee filters dude i literally got that toilet paper right before everyone started freaking out about <laughs> toilet paper and i was like let me just i go. did we were love in general and i was like let me just go get some we need some anyway and then they were all Somebody, gone two days later. i did i was like i was thinking about this they were talking about they were talking about having to do like a two-week quarantine and my logic brain was like okay if that's the case what are the things that I'm going to need if I can't leave my house for two weeks? I wasn't freaked out by it. I was just mm-hmm. thinking from a logical perspective. So I went and I got all of the things that I would need to keep in the refrigerator and keep in the house. Right. And obviously toilet Same. paper was one of them. And, you know, like milk and bacon and eggs and stuff. You know, your your storm essentials. And, and then it just so happened that right after that, everyone freaked out. And I'm just sitting there with my nice couple of packs of toilet paper like, Ha 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 ha. Literally did the same, like, literally the night before the mass hysteria and the mass going to the stores and buying stuff. I'd gone to the store, like, because I, I always got off work and I'd go to the store at night. So I went to the store at 1130 in the, at night and no one's there. And I just got the two or three, two weeks worth of food I usually get from my family. And I was like, okay. And the next day I went like, to get, good. I don't remember what I got. I think I went to get sugar for my mom because that's the one thing I forgot. And uh, I could not believe from 12 hours prior the change in the stores. This is a right? side note Just story, guys. Sorry. Empty. All the Lysol wipes were gone. All the toilet paper was gone. Mm-hmm. All the it eggs were gone. And you're like, what just happened? Right. I was not in this same store last night. No, I was not. But anyway. There was a rapture and it was just food. <laughs> like, like the Lord messed up and just took all the eggs. <laughs> These are mine now. For my disciples. Oh. Uh, so anyway, back to the back to the movie. Um, I don't even know. You guys like, are going to get how taste do we, like... of our real life conversations, <laughs> right? We'll be talking this about something, like then we'll half, jump to something else. Half movie analysis, half ADHD best friends talking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So it's great, great balance there. Of course. Um. So okay, I did 
we were bringing up, you know, you can watch it as a kid and and watch it one way, or you know, you can just watch it as an alien invasion, or you can watch the movie as a as a faith movie and a movie with all of the subtext right. and symbolism, and and that's definitely something that I wanted to talk about for this movie was just the amount of symbolism oh, yeah. that Shyamalan weaves into the storytelling. And it's just like, it's just little things at first. Like, like you and I, I think both noticed this because we made a point to watch the movie together mm-hmm. um, was like right in the opening when he's like getting ready in the bathroom, you see on the wall, there's just like this dirty, dusty outline of where there had been a cross hanging up. Right. And has since been taken down, you know, like when you take down a picture that's been up for years and you can see all the sun fading around mm-hmm. it, except mm-hmm. for where the picture was. And it was that. And it was, they don't draw any attention to it. He doesn't like, right. the character doesn't make a point to like look at it and be like, oh, I need to clean that or whatever to draw the audience's <laughs> right. attention to it. Like, like, no, they do it really elegantly and it's just there for you to notice. And when you notice it, you feel very fulfilled. Like, oh, I was smart enough to notice that. Mm-hmm. I saw that. And you can see that right from the beginning of the movie that faith is no longer playing a role in his life for some reason. Right. And you don't know anything yet, but you know that faith is not in his life mm-hmm. anymore for some reason. Mm-hmm. Well, you can you can draw two conclusions immediately right from the beginning of the movie because we get we do get two things. Right before we get the cross, we get a a pan shot of uh his bedroom and the picture of his family and then Mel Gibson waking up in a bed alone. Right. So right off the bat we see that we see uh there's a wife missing. Is she is she like missing missing? Is she already awake and with his family? Or like, mm-hmm. okay, where's his wife? And then we see that the cross has been very obviously taken down. And immediately within like the first 60 seconds of the movie, you go, Oh, I know what the problem is in this movie. Right. And you mentioned two other two of those things. There's another. It's just dark. It's just really, really dark. It is. We talked about like from a And it's like, well, are you precedence. talking about yeah, well, so I don't know if you're talking about, like, specifically, like, lighting. No, his bedroom. Even, yes, his bedroom. Mm-hmm. His bedroom is dark. Ooh, which we also talked about. Um, I had mentioned uh, in the last episode that at some point somebody says what time it is, and mm-hmm. we know he's woken up a little bit late because um, his kids are already up and out playing. Right. Um, and, and I noticed, too, the first meal of the day that they have is not breakfast. It's right. lunch. It's right. them grilling out. So he's slept in at least enough to miss breakfast. Right. And and that's also, I think, could definitely account for how dark his room is. The sun has already risen and is already moving to a different side of the house. So there is not daylight streaming in through his windows in the morning. Right. And, and kind of back, jumping back and forth and talking about production a little bit, too, that was something that you and I noticed immediately with some of the lighting choices in this house that like in a lot of the shots the they early just shots. use natural daylighting right and i love that um that is a i do too i love when they use natural light but it's also a it's hmm, it can be really really hard to oh film sure because consistency light. consistency is a big one especially when you're filming outside because it's like okay we have to deal with sunlight and we also have to deal with clouds if they are if there are clouds so continuity Sometimes you have to mess around with it because more it's more important to get the best take for an actor than it is to be like, oh, the clouds, they're, they've moved, you know, the clouds don't really matter that much. But, right. you know, how many people are paying attention to stuff like that except for me? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm that person. 
but you know i i love the natural i respect that person because it is it makes it it adds an element to the movie that other movies lack so i'm totally okay with that (laughs) some of the indoor lighting though um i know that they're trying to recreate natural daylight to seem like it's streaming through the windows and in other parts of the house there's an early scene where i think mayor no graham and um what's the sheriff's name uh oh sh- heck if i know but the um the actress's name is cherry jones yes cherry jones's character they're standing in like an archway or i'm like what is this lighting it looks harsh it looks harsher than it needs to and honestly there was a couple points in the film where i'm like the, the lighting was a little off but honestly i'm gonna let it slide because i really enjoy the rest of the film and the rest of the lighting in this film I was so okay with it because I definitely noticed, like, they have some lamps lit in the Mm -hmm. house, but unless they were, like, eating dinner at the dinner table, there was no main overhead lighting that was on in the house. They used a lot of natural daylight, even when they were, like, in the kitchen cleaning up after Houdini when he's made the mess, um, the lighting, like, they don't have any of the kitchen lights on. Um, they just use like the daylight coming in over the sink window. Right. Um, same thing with I think the scene that you mentioned where like they're staying. I think it's when they're standing in the doorway and Cherry Jones is getting ready to leave. Um, they're they're the shot is from the dark interior of the house mm-hmm. onto the daylighting in the background, which right. I feel like is actually counterintuitive because when you think about taking pictures, you're always supposed to be like, oh no, the daylight should be behind the camera because otherwise you're just gonna right. get like silhouettes and stuff. Right. Um. But I just, I liked it because it, it made the movie feel very natural right. um, and not forced. Like, it really made you feel like you were watching, I don't know, maybe like a home video of of a family. You know, it added a really nice element of realism where I think maybe some aggressive set lighting would have taken away from it. It mm-hmm. would have made it feel a little bit too staged. So I liked it. I liked it. Um, now that we've jumped to production, jumping back to symbolism and, and we had talked about, um, you know, right off the bat, we have that, that great little snippet of seeing the cross taken down. There was a lot of very subtle, uh, well, okay, no, I take it back. There was some faith symbolism in this movie. Um, you know, like when they're sitting down for dinner as a family, you can very much look at that, like right before the aliens invade, it's very much like a last supper kind of imagery. Mm -hmm. But I feel like for a movie that is about faith, there wasn't a whole lot of religious symbolism. Mm -hmm. It, it's more about, cause I feel like that can also be kind of on the nose too, because the movie was more about the lack this man's lack of faith and this man's lack of hope. So there wasn't a whole lot of overt, like, Christian or religious symbolism Mm -hmm. in it, which I thought was an interesting choice for a movie that is ultimately about faith. Or a man's venture into faith, back into faith. Yeah. Correct. Yes. A a man's for, I think we used the word for in the last episode. (laughs) (laughs) Love. Um, No, there was one, though, that I, in watching it again, because I I think I rewatched it in... Um, in preparation for this episode and there was one that I did notice and it like went over my head like the three times that I had watched it prior and I literally texted you like in all caps and I was like how did I miss this before and it's when uh Graham goes to see Ray Mm -hmm. at his house um and Ray's in his truck Mm -hmm. out out in his drive and he's getting ready to leave um and Graham goes up to the truck and he's like leaning on the open window and having a conversation with Ray and so there's a, a door separating them. Right. And 
And Ray finally kind of just bares his soul to Graham and tells him everything that he's been keeping in for the past six months, everything that's been weighing on him. And when I watched it again, I realized that that setup looked really familiar. There's a partition, there's a window, someone's burying his soul. And I go, oh my gosh, he's taking Ray's confession. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a great catch I... on your part. I love that. I was floored. I was so mad at myself. I was like, how did I miss that? Mm -hmm. I mean, really, it's so obvious because he was um, he was a reverend. I believe the actor himself is Catholic, I want to say. And that's definitely uh, a right that only occurs in Catholic churches is the art of confession or the act of confession. That's not something that occurs in um, Protestant churches, but still. I was like, so I'm I'm a little bit unfamiliar with it, but I was like, that's amazing. And I was so mad at mm-hmm. myself for missing it the first like five times I watched this movie because it was so good. Right. That was such a nice, artful way to do it. And it was I, I loved it. And I'm my new favorite scene is that one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Right after right under the sofa scene. Mm-hmm. Other were there other symbolism things that you wanted to bring up? I can't think of any that were particularly important. No. Um, so I know one thing I know we did talk about, uh, that we wanted to bring up and you had actually drawn my attention to is color theory in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was definitely something that I had not really realized was intentional on Shyamalan's part until going back and watching some of his other movies is color theory. Um, color definitely plays a huge role in his movies. Obviously it's huge in the village. Like it's so huge. It's a plot point. Um, he his I feel like his two favorite colors that he uses in film are red and gold. Um, yes, and those definitely came up in this one too. Um, like I said, village those are like they're they're so big it's a plot point. Um, the sixth sense though it they're not overt, um, but red is huge. Oh my gosh, there's so much red in that movie. It's almost overhanded in that movie. I mean, like the basement door, the balloon that pops mm-hmm. when the kids at the birthday party. Not oh by gosh, accident. Not by accident. He literally. I cried with laughter after I had noticed the the red stuff. And there's this moment when Bruce Willis meets Haley Joel Osment in the church, and they talk just a little bit. And he's like, you know, we were supposed to have a session this morning. Um, and the kid goes to leave, and as he's walking out, he steals one of the figurines, and it's the red figurine, mm-hmm. of course. And I was like, of course, it's the red figurine. Red is just was... such a symbolic color. It's just, it's a very it's, symbolic color. And it's it, it such stands a symbolic for so many color. Things. So many things, but it's usually a negative color. Unless it is being used for romantic love, which is usually very obvious and overt, mm-hmm. red tends to be used with negative emotions. So very, very poignant in that movie. In this movie, um, Shyamalan's colors are there, but they're very muted. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely see that. I remember like this one very distinct scene when um, it's showing all of the water glasses that Bo has left all over the house. And we get this shot of a red lamp um like the base of the lamp is red but it's very muted it's not like a bright has been recently been painted red it's just like you know an old red lamp so the color's a little faded and then the glasses underneath the lamp have some very obvious tones of like yellow and gold in Mm -hmm. them Mm-hmm. And I'm just looking at that. I'm like, wow, that was just so beautifully intentional to me that he still used his favorite symbolic colors, but then 
toned them down significantly because obviously the water is important and he's using um, his his colors to uh, draw attention to them. But this movie, I like that the colors were more muted in this movie because he, Shyamalan himself said that this movie feels significantly different than his other feature right. films. And, and that he wanted it to feel different. He wanted it to be lighter, less burdened. When he was writing the script, he would only write when he felt happy or was feeling positive. Um, so I like that he brought in some of his signature design elements, but specifically altered them for an altered feel for this movie. It was so good. I lo- yeah, I 100% agree with that. I Again, back to the, you know, this is despite this story being about an otherworldly kind of thing, it feels more grounded than some of his other films. So I I agree with Mm -hmm. that. Like this being a more grounded film, it would make sense that he's not overtly using some of his favorite colors in these films as often Mm -hmm. as he would in others. Yeah. Even though it was about aliens, this film didn't feel quite so supernatural as his other movies, Mm -hmm. which is so counterintuitive, but I loved it. I loved it. I think this is why it's his best film. Um and oh you think this is his best film? Yes. I think oh. this is his best film. I guess I haven't really thought about what I think M Night Shyamalan's best film is. I know is. a lot of people would probably say that um oh man oh man either Unbreakable or maybe even I mean didn't Split win awards? I don't know if Split won awards, but it was high. Like people were really happy about that comeback. So like in Night Shyamalan, like this was a great comeback for him. But yeah, I say The Sixth Sense or Unbreakable are two is more famous and renowned. But I think mm-hmm. Signs is I think Signs is his best film because I think it breaks away from his usual form of filmmaking and writing. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's accessible to everyone mm-hmm. too. That, that's kind of something we talked about is like you can appreciate one side of it or you can appreciate the other side of it. You can watch it either way and you can like it. And so, yeah, it is a lot more accessible to a wider range of audiences. Right. Um, I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. I want my heart wants to say The Village because rewatching it, I was like, this is an amazing movie. I do love The Village. That one is very a you like it or you don't like it film now. Really, though, because I mean, like I told you, I watched it as a kid and I did not like it. I was absolutely terrified I loved it as a kid. because loved it. when I was a child, I'm telling those dark hallways after I watched the village, like <laughs> I could swear that I saw one of one of the bad ones at the end of my hallway in mm. my kitchen for sure. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. I want to like I said, I want to say the village. I love the soundtrack in the village, uh, but that might just be me having recently watched it going, this movie's so good. Right. Um, ooh, the I, I want you to talk about the color that you had brought up to me that I hadn't thought had played a whole lot of importance in the movie until you pointed it out. So the color I noticed, what, it doesn't happen until the very, very end of the film after the resolution and everything's come back to it's calm and normal. We go mm-hmm. back to the beginning of the film, back to um, Graham's bedroom. And at this point, it's now winter in the film. Summer's gone, mm-hmm. aliens are gone, everything is gone. But the color white is really important. Um, so in the final scene, we see the camera pan across Graham's bedroom. We see that snowing outside, winter snow is blanketed the house and its surrounding fields. And, you know, there's a small, short moment, but it's really, really powerful. So white is often symbolic of purity light godliness and obviously this film was about faith 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, the snow has washed away all the impurities. The crops have been harvested there. You know, the crop circles are all gone. The snow has washed away everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with the aliens gone, you know, we see Graham has taken up his role back in the church. And what's more showing us mm-hmm. that, you know, he believes, mm-hmm. you know, the snowfall along with the scene, um, putting him, you know, putting on his jacket, you know, shows he's renewed his faith. But, you know, in the Bible, the color white is specifically used um or excuse me um the color white is specifically the imagery of snow is important it's often used in scripture to describe purity um that something has been washed you know something has been washed white as snow um there's an old christian hymn with the lyric sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow but Mm -hmm. white that's what white represents in you know more western faith but if you go right, further, which would make sense with this movie because it's it is a faith based film, right? But if you go further, the color white in some Eastern cultures is used as showing mourning or death. And you know, think of the recent mm. like in Wakanda Forever. You know, not to spoil. Which don't say too much because I haven't seen <laughs> right. it yet. I mean, no so spoilers. Unfortunately, best guy ever, Chadwick Boseman, passed away, and they honored mm. his death in the film. And for his funeral procession, everyone in the film wore white. Um, but the use, you know, the color white snow in this film could be seen as death as well. The death of old Graham, the death of the crop circles, new beginnings, everything comes full circle via the white snow. Mm, full circle, like a crop circle. Like a crop circle. Uh, <laughs> no, that's awesome. Well, because, because I, I remember specifically just as a viewer, we get to the end of the movie and, and we've got our resolution and everything and it does and it pans across. Graham's empty bedroom but but the windows are like you can see through the windows you can see that it's snowing outside and I just remember just and he's thinking, letting light in well yes yes windows I remember open. thinking as a viewer I was like huh what was the reason behind making like deciding to have it be snowing outside mm-hmm. because obviously I'm gonna assume that from a production standpoint like they didn't wait until it snowed to there's just get no that way. one shot there's no way there's no way green screen so right so that means having it be snowing outside is a conscious choice Mm -hmm. was a conscious choice on the choice Mm -hmm. on the part of production nothing is ever by accident nothing is ever done by accident in movies like because you have to think about it like it didn't just like happen to be snowing that day and you're like oh well i guess we're gonna film anyway (laughs) yeah no (laughs) so so yeah so you can say like oh i don't think white was that representative of stuff and like no i'm pretty sure it was because Mm -hmm. It was a conscious choice and and just yes, from from the faith standpoint of things, the imagery of snow is really important. It is constantly used to describe having washed sin away and people being washed white as snow and and to represent a new beginning and starting over and a rebirth. And and so I love that that was a choice that they used in this movie and and I, that does really fall under the umbrella of color theory because, I mean, white's, mm-hmm. white's a color. Mm-hmm. Um, or it is it's white the presence of all color? Yes. Because black is the absence of all color. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of, like, my art class color theory here. I'm sorry black if my old art teacher's listening to this. Like, child, did you pay attention to anything in my class? <laughs> Listen, I was an art um, person, so I'm just going to say what I want, and it's going to be correct. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> as long as I speak with authority. <laughs> It will be correct. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, Mr. Marvel. I am um, not sorry. <laughs> um, talking about color, 
also makes me think of something that I noticed too. And it's not color, but it is definitely very visual. Um, Morgan reading his book, I think had said something about like, it's, it's probable that they can like camouflage or something. I think it was Morgan that mentioned it, but it had to be Morgan. He's the only one giving us flat points in this film. (laughs) And I'm telling you, that was literally something that I absolutely loved in this movie was like Morgan using this one random book on aliens to like give us important plot details Mm -hmm. about how the aliens function. But like even better, sometimes he would bring up absolutely ridiculous things like they're probably vegetarians and like you have to laugh at it and Mm -hmm. you're like, okay, I can suspend my disbelief a little bit because that's completely ridiculous. So there are elements that are more ridiculous than believing in aliens. In you this have movie. to weave in the nonsensical with the sensical. Exactly, because it helps temper it. Yep. You know, you're not like stretching. This credulity. 10-year-old can't be right about everything. Exactly. Oh, it's such a great writing trick. I absolutely love it. Um, but he had mentioned something about like the alien. I think it was him mentioning something about the aliens being able to camouflage. Um And at the end, so this is why I'm bringing it up about, like, color and stuff, because we'd seen it a couple of times. Um, That's why when the alien is, like, imprinted against the night sky, we literally just see, like, a silhouette. Right. Um, And then same thing with when uh, Graham confronts the alien in the pantry. um, When it sticks its hand out, its hand mimics the brick and mortar that's underneath it. Um, and then at the end of the movie, when that alien, that same alien, by the way, uh, comes into Graham's house and grabs Morgan, um, we see the hand that's wrapped around Morgan's plaid shirt is taking on the color of his, the pattern of his shirt behind it. And that's when we draw attention to that particular alien's hand. It's the alien that's missing the ends of a couple of fingers. Mm -hmm. Um, so a couple of things, you know, it follows that same camouflaging logic, explains a little bit to you, you go, okay, that makes sense. And also draws specific attention to that. This is not just some random alien. This is a very specific alien. This is an alien who has a grudge. Right. Like who knew aliens hold grudges? Apparently these aliens hold grudges. Yeah, I mean, like if somebody off. chopped my fingers off, I would also maybe hold a grudge. I'd right, be, be like, I'm coming after that. their asthma attack son. Uh, <laughs> like those were my peanut butter licking fingers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Sorry. That was wonderful. Thank you. Oh, but <laughs> oh, to like. <laughs> so slow burn comedy. You don't oh just get it goodness. once, you get it twice. That's so funny. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to be thinking about that a lot. <laughs> oh goodness continue uh, i apologize in advance for all the clipping my mic does i'll right say mine clip too but i can fix that <laughs> i can fix that um don't you dare ooh. quote another film <laughs> now i'm crying because i'm sad <laughs> that's also a great film great book adaption it was an excellent movie Excellent. Super well done. For anyone who we doesn't realize what we're talking about, we're list. now talking about Holes. Holes. Mm. Holes. Dulé Hill. Young Shia LaBeouf. Patricia Arquette. Like, that cast is The cast amazing. was great. The cast is fantastic. We're gonna have to add Holes to the list. I will talk oh, about yeah. Holes. I love that I read movie. the book, also. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, we're planning on, yes, not spoiler alert, but like heads up, we're definitely planning on having like a a mini series of books to movies. A mini series? Um, Well, not a mini series. I mean, but like, we'll be definitely doing uh, some movies that were turned from books to movies um, because I'm a huge book reader and I definitely have things to say about how the books were different from the movies. (laughs) Um, Okay, so back to, now that I have completely derailed us, back to talking about the alien with a grudge. Um, I, I was watching this the second time with my mom, um, cause I definitely have to watch these movies multiple times. I had, uh, I had a film and a writing teacher tell me like, when you have to analyze film, watch it once just to watch it right. and then, and do not take notes your first time through. You need to be able to take in everything without mm-hmm. you trying to process something. And then the second time you can start taking notes and start analyzing. And so the second time I watched it was with my mom and I was taking notes on it. And she noticed something that I had actually missed in this final confrontation scene. Um, so we now understand how the camouflaging works and we get a shot, uh, like a B-roll shot, if you will, over like the alien's shoulder Um, And he's holding Morgan and he has his little sprayer extended from his wrist. Mm -hmm. And we see this kind of discoloration, almost like a glow in his wrist joint. When I looked at that and I thought this when I was a kid and I thought this when I was an adult, I thought it was drawing attention to and reminding you of like that the aliens secrete some kind of poisonous gas in small doses that can subdue people Mm -hmm. um, or that can kill people. And I thought that color that I was seeing was um, like the gland maybe that like held all of the poisonous gas. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, cause that would make sense to me. And I thought it was like, you know, using symbolism to draw attention to like, Hey, remember this thing that we mentioned earlier? Uh, this alien has poisonous gas. No, my mom pointed out it's actually a reflection of Graham's face because the skin takes on the appearance of whatever is behind it. So if you go back, it's a very Neat. distorted reflection of Graham's face. And I was like, Whoa. I wonder if I did notice that, but now that I have the movie popped up in front of me to notice, but like, maybe. I can't say I remember that for sure. I had, well, like I said, I had interpreted it as something completely different. Um, and my and my mom looked at it and she read something different into it. But once I realized it was Graham's face, how I read it was an absolutely excellent usage of show don't tell mm-hmm. um because that reminds you like if you had if you miss the fingers like this and having graham's face filter through the alien skin is just a reminder that this is personal mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. this is not just one random alien they got left behind you know they said they left behind some of their injured it's like no this alien chose to seek him out right. and find him and it's personal Mm -hmm. and we see that in having his face literally reflected on the alien when he's getting ready to spray poisonous gas to his son so as you said his peanut butter fingers got you know they got nicked he's he wants them back and he's mad he wants revenge oh my god his revenge instead of oh i'm gonna chop your fingers off i'm just gonna kill your son that's i'm going to kill your son that escalated quickly right that escalated quickly Right? Like, well, I mean, that makes perfect sense because they came to try to take over the planet. They seem like hot, heavy escalators, okay? Really, though. Like, they clearly do not have a good concept of, like, tit for tat. <laughs> <laughs> no, they do not. <laughs> um, 
So since since I brought up show don't tell, like let's definitely talk about that concept because um, this is one of my favorite concepts in writing is show don't tell. Um, and for th- so those of you who don't know what we mean by show don't tell, like if you've never been forced to write like a creative essay or something or creative story in high school or anything, um, show don't tell is a technique used by writers to add drama to their storytelling. Um, and it encourages reader slash viewer engagement and immersion. Um, and so what I mean by that is like good stories have heavy elements of show don't tell um anton Chekhov once said don't tell me the moon is shining show me the glint of light on broken glass Mm -hmm. that is the difference between show don't tell you can say like the moon shone on the lake or whatever or you could say the waves rippled with a hint of silver Mm -hmm. you know and that that is the difference between show don't tell and good stories definitely utilize show instead of telling right should it be used all the time no like there's definitely a ratio i feel like it should be like 70 30 (laughs) um because if you uh if you use it all the time it weighs your story down um and we can get into that later but that's something that Shyamalan definitely does really well and we talked about um, opening with a picture of the wife and family, right. but then we see that Graham's in an empty bed. That is a great example of mm-hmm. showing instead of telling. You know, right. you don't have a character clapping Graham on the shoulder later and going like, man, I know your wife died six months ago and I know you're probably <laughs> still dealing with it. But movies do that and it's so cringy. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's just spoon feeding information to your readers like here's, or your watchers. Like, here's the thing. We're smart. We as humans are generally semi-intelligent, and we can figure that kind of stuff out. (laughs) Like, okay, you gotta remember this is the same population that hoarded toilet paper, okay? So there's a caveat there. (laughs) You're not wrong. You're not wrong. So, um, yeah, please tell me, like, were there, what were the notices of, like, or what were the instances of show, don't tell that, like, you picked up on in this movie? Hmm... Because I know Obviously, that you're definitely a big cross, fan of it, too. The cross was the first one. Right, the yeah, we talked about that. You were the one, one who pointed that out to me when we were watching it. The, because you know me, you know, I'm picking up on these small... I, it always comes down a lot for me with lighting, but um, that's not as pertinent in this film. But the cross and, again, the end of the film with the the color white again. Those were the two... Two of the bigger ones for me. Mm-hmm. But... Show Don't Tell is obviously one of my favorite parts of storytelling because you can, you don't, it's like you said, you don't need to fill in all the gaps by telling somebody. You don't need all, Mm-mm. like, I feel like so many good films get ruined with too much prose and too much talking where it's like, okay, show me yes. that instead. Right. Like, I don't need you to tell me, like, because from a writing standpoint, also, you have to think about, like, why is this character saying things that, saying things out loud that this character should already know? Mm-hmm. Like, why like it doesn't it doesn't track logically it is it's completely unnecessary and i think we as viewers get a sense of that even if we maybe can't put a terminology to it um we definitely notice like okay why are you still talking we're bored we get it (laughs) i'm not bringing Um, up films i'm not mentioning specific films but like there was one time i was sitting in a theater watching a film i'd been looking forward to seeing and like i 
the last 15 minutes of the film were killed for me because it was just this long, detailed story about someone's background. I was like, I do. Like, here's the thing. They're showing us what was happening as they were telling us. And I was like, you do one or the other, but don't do both. Like, now you've just made what? me bored. Like, it was like weird monologue over yes, montage? Yes, yes, And I was like, <sighs> it was long. And I was like, I remember sitting in the theater. I was like, I was really kind of liking this film until this point, And now I'm bored. And this is the there climax of the film. There was a movie that I watched that was like that, too. And they tried to be artful about it. I think it was some kind of apocalyptic movie. But then, like, the last 15 minutes of it were, like, news broadcasts. Like, really bad news broadcast saying, like... I don't even mind I don't, stuff I don't like that sometimes, but then it's like, we've ha- we've watched this whole film, and now you're giving me a news broadcast of something I already knew about? What? That's right. how you open a film. Mm-hmm. That's how you open a film. That's how you open a film. I'm thinking of, like, World War Z, which or did the one. Really what's well. the one with um, Will Smith and the dog? I Am Legend? Yeah. That one, I'm pretty sure, Ooh. opens up with, like, snippets of news stories. It probably does. It's a great way to explain like sudden apocalyptic happenings right. is is news stories. I think because that's exactly how it would happen anyway. Too. Which is something yeah. I like about this film. Like again, the here they actually do tell us without showing. So the radio, you know, they're listening to all this stuff on the radio. They're watching the TV. Yeah, there's new broadcasts in this one too. Right, and I love that. I love those moments because instead of it just being alien invasions and aliens attacking the house, you're seeing it happen in real time across the globe and people's reactions mm-hmm. to it. Because like that, the famous, very famous scene from this film is when Meryl is watching that news broadcast of the children's birthday and they see that alien mm. walk past, you know, showing the alien. <laughs> Move, children, showing- Vominos. <laughs> right. You know, that's another thing where it's like, we're showing you the alien. We are telling you, but like showing us is what makes it the suspense more Mm -hmm. thrilling. So when the alien, like when Graham's out in the field. The classic Bigfoot shot. Right. Love that shot. That's the shot I will never forget when I watched the trailer was I was like, "Mm -mm, nope, nobody, nope. Don't need to see. Stuck in my head. You know, and those are like even the small moments of like overt showing. You know, we don't need you to tell us about the aliens because we are seeing them. You're giving us glimpses of it. But, you know, show yeah. and tell can work in we different ways. You don't need to show and tell. You can show or tell. But yes. showing and telling a lot, like, you can you can do both as long as it's moving the story along. But if you're showing sure, and exactly. telling, uh-uh. I mean, it can be too much sometimes. Right. It can be too much sometimes. I totally agree. Because here's the thing. Like I said, like, we, we're in, we can be an intelligent audience. Like, give us the occasion and we will rise to it mm-hmm. for the most part. For like, the most obviously, part. there's definitely going to be things that we miss as viewers. And that's fine because then that gives your movie rewatchability. Like, me missing the confessional scene. Or me noticing like, the color white at the end of times. this film. Exactly. And then you feel even smarter because you're like, oh, that was there the whole time and I missed it. Or you mm-hmm. feel stupid, like, in my case. <laughs> um, but on on the note of show, don't tell, you know, I had mentioned that a, like, for instance, a good novel does a mixture of both. It's maybe like 70, 30. And there are definitely, there are definitely times when showing is important and not being overt about the information that you're trying to give your audience. And there are times when you want to just hand them information because it's not crucial that they like figure it out for themselves or anything. Sometimes you just need to hand them information, like especially in like description of like places or something. Right. Um, you don't need to be super artsy about it all the time. The key is knowing when to do which technique. Right. Um, and it's it's interesting because I want to bring up something that I noticed that Shyamalan does in most of his movies, and he did it in in this one too. Um, 
he and I don't know how I feel about it. Um, Go on. He has this moment where he doesn't leave the conclusion drawing up to the viewers. Okay. And he does this in a lot of his movies. I know he does this in Signs. He does it in The Sixth Sense. He does it in The Village. He does it in The Happening. Uh, Right at the crux of the story, he will insert a flashback. Mm-hmm. where we get a voiceover from a character and sometimes we'll even get the original scene too saying the super important line from the movie uh that you need to know right. like in in signs like we're we're at the like the climax where they're facing off against the alien and all of a sudden Graham's figuring out that like everything meant something and and the music and like it pans it, back. The music goes up and then it goes, whew, it's out, and then you're into the cut. Yes, and it goes, see what you have to ask yourself is what kind of person are you? Mm-hmm. Are you the kind that sees signs, sees miracles? Or do you believe that people just get lucky? Mm-hmm. And and all of a sudden you're realizing, like, oh, the water's important, and there's a reason that Meryl had that giant 507-footer record, and he has the bat on the wall at home. And he had a failed and, baseball career. It all comes and together. And he had a failed baseball career, because otherwise he wouldn't be there. And there's a reason that Morgan had asthma, and, like, all everything all comes together. But Shyamalan doesn't leave it up to us to draw all of those conclusions and figure it all out. I don't mind it. I don't know that I mind it either, but I have to just wonder, would we be able to figure it out without it? I think about that a lot. And honestly, I feel like it like it does not come up enough. Like, had they... The miracles part, I think that was a good adage. If they had not added in, you know, his wife and her little prose before her death there too. Mm-hmm. You know, I think because the the big deal was, oh, because that's the other thing that they add in is right. And this was really odd, an odd writing choice, but it worked is right there at the crux of the movie. They stop everything and we finally get the end of Graham's flashback and see the actual death of his wife. In that, I think, honestly, had they not had obviously had to say out loud, you know, swing away, Meryl, because that would have made sense. Otherwise, you can't be like, wait, what? It's not that like that part was super important, but you, those are two different things. That had to be there's, said, or that had to be said. Yes, yes. The, that was really important. There's two different things. There's the flashback where we finally get, which jumping back to religious symbolism, I'm pretty sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, that the flashback is broken up into three parts. We get it in I three separate so. parts, yes. which you know the number three plays a, the, is, is a huge number in the Bible. I think the first one is he's walking up to the scene and he's like, "Is this the last time I'm going to talk to my wife?" And then mm-hmm. I think the next one is he finally approaches the car. Mm-hmm. And then the last one yeah. is the actual discussion. Yes. Yeah, it's either I two or that's three. How it's broken I believe up. it's three. I, I think you're right. I'm Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's three. So that was definitely, I feel like, a conscious choice. But interesting that, like, right at the big impact moment of the story that they take that momentum and they redirect it. And I was like... Why? And then you see the scene and you're like, oh, that's why. Um, And that was something I wanted to bring up also in talking about that flashback scene. That scene was really important um, because we also finally get to see that earlier in the movie when Graham relayed his wife's last words, 
he was not exactly being truthful about what and how she said it. Because mm-hmm. he did say that she said swing away. Right. But he said that, that you was know, during it was the sofa random scene, synapses firing. Huh? I believe that was during the sofa scene. Yeah, it was during this. It was during the sofa scene because then he asks him, you know, what kind of person are you? And he finally talks about his wife's death, and he says that she said swing away, and she just was transported back to a memory of going to one of his baseball games, and and she was just somewhere else at that moment, mm-hmm. and was thinking of something else entirely, and it meant nothing, like that. That was her last words, and because it he meant wanted it, like he he didn't want. It's like you said, we said the last podcast, or even this one too. He didn't mm-hmm. want his wife's death. To be on purpose. Right, exactly. He didn't want to ascribe any higher meaning to those words mm-hmm. because then that would mean that his wife was meant to die. And had to die, yes. Exactly, because if she hadn't died, she would not have given him that crucial piece of information to tell Meryl to swing away. Mm-hmm. And that that really is the important part because then, and that's why they drop that scene in there because all of a sudden it makes sense. And you see Graham finally starting to put two and two together. Yep. So it's connecting and all the dots. Both Graham and Meryl have equal parts in figuring out how to stop this. It's not just Graham having a giant emotional catharsis. Like Meryl is an equal player mm-hmm. in that ending scene. Mm-hmm. Um, because Graham comes out of his reverie or we, we finish seeing the flashback and we realize the words swing away mean something. Right. Um, and so... Graham, without looking at Meryl, says, swing away, Meryl, swing away. Right. And slowly we see Meryl putting it together and he slowly pans over to his bat and picks it up off the wall. We have this beautiful shot of him reflected in his 507-footer record plaque. Such a beautiful shot. I love that shot. Oh, it's beautiful. And it's so hard to do reflective shots, too, because it's mm-hmm. like, okay, is the camera in the shot? <laughs> right. Is the crew out of the shot? Mm-hmm. Um and so he grabs the bat and uh, the alien realizes what's about to happen. I believe Bo screams or well, the alien uh, sprays the gas in Morgan's face. Bo screams and Meryl clocks him right in the spine and he drops Morgan. Graham grabs him and his inhaler and Meryl clocks him again and the alien stumbles into like a dresser and a glass of water falls over mm-hmm. on him mm-hmm. and and sears his shoulder. And all of a sudden you see Meryl put it together and then you see Graham put it together and they kind of look at each other and we get this beautiful panning shot of Meryl in the background of all of the half drunk glasses of water that Bo has left everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that shot like, is so like, oh, it just, it gives me goosebumps because it's, so it's the realization it you're like, oh, oh, mm-hmm. okay, everything's about and to get real. And that's another moment. Yes, that is another moment of of show don't tell. So so I guess Shyamalan does both in this. He you know he gives us the flashback where we realize swing away is incredibly important, even though it was definitely downplayed earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um. We get the flashback of, are you the person who sees signs, sees miracles, or do you believe that people just get lucky? And and that really matters. But then when it comes to the ultimate thing that uh, defeats the aliens, the water, Shyamalan does leave that up to viewers to realize that mm-hmm. it was so important that Bo, left, Bo had a problem with the water. Um, 
you know, we had stuff handed to us, but then he did, he did kind of a half and half and he let us figure out like, oh my gosh, and that's why Bo has a problem with water. Right. So it's done really balanced at the well, end yeah, of the movie. Yeah, all the culmination of all the things, you know, his wife's death, her words, you know, Meryl's failed career in baseball, everything mm-hmm. happened everything. for a reason. All to this, yes. all to come up to this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so from a writing standpoint, I think it was done pretty balanced. He he handed us some of it, but he let us do some of it on our own. Mm-hmm. So so I'm still ambivalent about how Shyamalan does um the the like the recap for you in his movies because he does like I said he does it in like all four of those movies that were all released around this time. He does it in Signs, does it in The Village, does it in The Sixth Sense, does it in uh, The Happening. Um, you get a, a recap moment where he he draws your attention to the important thing that you need to know to figure out the crux of this movie. Mm-hmm. But so still ambivalent on it. But in this one, I think it's done really well. Okay, I agree. Um, I agree. So last couple of things I wanted to talk about before we wrap. Um, we didn't really talk a whole lot about production, um, but there was one that I wanted to bring up. Um, and it was some of the the shot framing decisions because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, I had sent you I had sent you a video about all of the the shots that are like Shyamalan's hallmark shots that he yeah. includes in his movie, like his framing, like the lot. God's eye angle um, and stuff like that. There's there's a footprints in the for or like a, a footsteps in the foreground shot that he likes to add into a lot of his movies. And like now I notice them. But not as much because that's not where my background is as far as, you know, filmmaking goes. Um, But there was one that I really noticed because he does it several times. He does it like three or four times Mm -hmm. in the movie. And it's this slow zoom on a character's face while another character is speaking. Mm -hmm. And and I I made it counterintuitive. It is. It is completely counterintuitive because you think that, you know, when a character is speaking, the camera should be on their face because they're saying something that's important so the audience should be focused on them right that's what generally happens but in these the opposite happened and where another character would be speaking and saying something important and instead of being focused on their face it was focused on another character's face that was in the scene Mm -hmm. and doing this really slow zoom in on their face um up until like a stopping point while this character is talking and saying something important and and it happened about three different times in the movie until I, f- I finally figured out what the significance of it was. Um, the first one is on in the sofa scene uh-huh. and Mel is talking and he's giving his his monologue on, um, you know, what kind of person are you? And instead of focusing on Mel Gibson, the the camera is zooming in on Joaquin Phoenix's face. Right. And I'm like, Why? Like, I mean, he talks afterwards, but then it doesn't, it never panned away from him. Mel Gibson finishes talking and then Joaquin Phoenix just starts in on his lines. Right. And, and I'm like, to point that out, it doesn't leave Joaquin Phoenix when he speaks. It stays on him. No, it stays on him. And I'm like, what in the, why? And then the next time it happens is when Graham goes to talk to Ray Reddy and Ray is saying all the important and heartbreaking you know, train wreck-esque kind of stuff about him having killed the Reverend's wife for a reason. And he's saying incredibly important things. I mean, Mm -hmm. heck, we talked about it's M. Night Shyamalan playing the character. So the director is literally playing this character and delivering this incredibly important monologue. But the camera's not on him. Mm -hmm. The camera's on Mel Gibson. The camera's on Graham. 
And while Ray's talking, we get a very slow zoom in on Graham's face the mm-hmm. whole time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why? Like, this is such this is such an odd decision. And it wasn't until, like, the last time that I noticed it that I figure out why. And it's when they're all, I believe, crammed into the closet and they're listening to a newscast. And the newscasters have figured out that the aliens are hostile and, and they're telling everybody that they have come to attack and to hunker down in your homes because we're all done for. And during this whole newscast, the camera is slowly zooming in on Graham's face. And then the newscaster says, God be with us all. Mm-hmm. And that's when I figured it out. And it's done. This Zoom shot is done to illustrate not the importance of what is being said, but who the words are important to. Right. And and so I went back and I checked my theory and I was like, does this work in every scene that I noticed this in? And it does. That that when Mel Gibson is talking on the couch, the 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 importance is not to him, but the importance is to Meryl's character. Right. Those words affect needs, him the most. He needs the comfort. He needs to realize that he is a signs and miracles man. Mm-hmm. And when Ray is talking in the truck, it's Graham that needs to hear those words and doesn't want to hear them, but they are incredibly striking and important to him because he's been avoiding the truth of them for months. And and in the closet, those the newscaster saying the words, God be with us all, is like a punch in the gut to mm-hmm. Graham's character. Those words are so important to him because right then, he is the opposite of everything that he was saying on the sofa. He he does believe that they are all alone and God is not with them and there is no one to help them and they are on their own. And and I was just like, man, that is so important. But, you know, I think me as a casual viewer and not somebody who's up on production choices and, and shot framing choices, I did eventually get it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not so artful a choice that it just goes over the head of all viewers. You know, once I thought critically about it, I did come to the conclusion of that right. it was it was done with intention. So so I did like it because it it was done well enough that you're like, you do eventually get it as a viewer. Right. And I want to bring up a little film theory thing real quick. Um, something I learned in my watching films class a couple years ago. We talked about the horror body genre and Mm-hmm. hate to say it but a lot of that genre was based on the sexualization of fear kind of gross mm. we've graduated yeah. from that thankfully but yes, we have graduated from that but yet the like you know women shaking in fear mm-hmm. wide-eyed and Meh. someone some man is going to come in and save the day kind of thing not even that like the mutilation of bodies like like women like experiencing horror like that kind of sexualization but thankfully we've graduated and i'm glad our society has grown up (laughs) thank goodness like just some perspective we have grown up as a society like Mm -hmm. but specifically that genre popped in my head during graham's scene with ray ready and we're mm-hmm, watching the confessional scene yeah and we're watching like this oh this poor man we're watching every horror every sadness come across his face as he's being you know told the the death of his wife again like, it, like he's mm-hmm. being told and like yeah it, it seemed like it was meant to be mm-hmm. and that that genre of film top popped in my head as you know i'm watching that scene but reaction shots in general are really really important and i think you make a, a really good point in saying you know I mean, we usually, again, when someone is monologuing or speaking, we might see some, uh, you know, shots go back and forth between the characters. 
But mm-hmm. it's like you said, they stay and zoom in on these characters as they're listening to these important mm-hmm. plot points and these important moments in the film. And again, it's done on purpose. Like, again, you said the words are affecting the person we're watching and seeing their reaction can also make us think, okay, well, where do we sit with these words? How do these words affect right. us as the viewer? Mm, yeah, how are we as the audience supposed to interpret this? Mm-hmm. Are we supposed to feel something specific? Because directors definitely do that. They definitely will encourage their audiences to feel or have a specific interpretation of something. And that's So I a- think, yeah, definitely with the sofa scene, we're supposed to be looking at the movie and thinking, yes, there are signs. Yes, there are miracles. And we just need Graham's character to get with a picture. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we really want Graham to be like, yeah, miracles. They're all there. You know, things are for, you know, everything has a meaning and everything happens for a reason. But what I really love is it gets, it's punctuated at the end where he's like, uh, no, there's in fact nobody looking out for us. Sucks to suck. Mm. Like you get this great moment of Meryl telling us this, his his miracle story, right? And yes. then oh, mm-hmm. Graham comes right in and like cuts the veil and he's like, no, nobody's looking out for us. Absolutely nobody. Mm-hmm. Love it. Right. And and goes back to, you know, recounting his wife's last moments, but not being truthful about them. Mm-hmm. And we see that later and we're like, oh, man, you're just lying to yourself the whole time. Like you, you do believe you were just mad about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, was there anything else we wanted to bring up before we wrapped for today? I think that was it. I think we got all the important points we wanted to talk about. Okay, perfect. Um, I know we said we were going to talk about music, but we're kind of just out of time. Um, this was a great soundtrack, and I absolutely love James Newton Howard. He's done, like, literally everything. Um, so if you don't know who that is, shame on you, and go listen to James Newton Howard's soundtrack music. <laughs> I will say just one big point of his music is just the way the music starts the film. It sets the precedence, yes. and the, the anxiety of the film starts with his Ugh. opening music. Okay, no, I will definitely make comment on that because you're you're so so right. I because that was, fa- I feel like that that opening for a movie has actually been phased out at this yeah. point. That is reminiscent of like '60s horror, like Hitchcock kind yeah. of films, yeah, where yeah, you yeah. have a tense soundtrack. Like it's a full orchestral suite mm-hmm. that opens the credits for this movie, and we get all of the credits and all of the actors during this whole like five to ten minute orchestral suite. It's not even that, that long. It's very movie. short, in fact. Is it really? It felt like it was forever. No, it was only it like felt a like minute it was or forever. so. And be- I feel like it felt like it was so long because the music was so tense. Yes. And you're yes. just sitting there. And I remember watching it with you and I was like, man, this is a long opener. This music is so tense. I'm like, <laughs> when fact, is this music really going to resolve? That's so crazy. Mm-hmm. You know what? Per- perfect example of music setting tone i'm like by the end of it i am like tense and i am just waiting for something bad to happen <laughs> and but that's great that was the exact intention of that um was to set the tone for the movie because then you don't have to waste any time convincing your viewers to take your movie seriously convincing right. your viewers to accept the world that you have created for the film Correct. you've already done that you you done did did that you with the music the mm-hmm. and because then when the actual, when the rest of the theme starts, it's that really contemplative piano, like the, like that theme over and over again, mm-hmm. it, it, it changes. It's not so much tense anymore. There are definitely moments of tenseness in the soundtrack, especially when the aliens come out. Right. But the rest of the feel is just that like 
gently suspenseful piano, mm-hmm. um, which was very reminiscent of like X Files. Like I literally remember watching the movie with you again for the first time in like twenty years and going, "Well, this sounds like X Files music." You did you did? Which which is has to be done on purpose. X Files has been around for like a decade at the point that this movie has come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody watched X Files. Like it was a it was a huge deal. My I remember in the nineties, my parents watching X Files. Yeah, uh, again, back to theme. Aliens. My dad loved X Files, so I was avoiding yeah. that being in the living room with him at all costs. Right, it was terrifying to me as a five year old seeing X Files in my parents' living room. But but it sounded the same, and so then you're also doing you're setting a precedent of association for your viewers because mm-hmm. the soundtrack was different obviously he didn't just like full plagiarize like the x-files theme because i mean it's james newton howard he would never he would never Um, he doesn't need to he would he would never uh but it does sound enough like it that you're already accepting like okay aliens this movie's about aliens that's okay and which makes sense though because apparently james newton howard did listen to other alien soundtracks or very other otherworldly soundtracks to get the tone for this movie Mm -hmm. um he specifically listened to close encounters of the third kind and the twilight zone to get the tone for this movie which makes perfect sense alien music and suspenseful music nailed it right um in fact uh Shyamalan did tell james newton howard that he thought that this was his best score to date which james newton howard disagreed with (laughs) (laughs) i mean he had so many iconic booms he has so many i mean really i mean like like i've told you like i think my favorite of his is the village i promptly went and downloaded like the whole village soundtrack because it's it's so him but it's not his style uh specifically because he doesn't usually work with strings so directly Mm -hmm. and i think for the village he actually paired with a an award-winning violinist um for that soundtrack and because normally um howard favors like piano Mm -hmm. and and just like very tonal music um i know i've brought up the hunger Games soundtrack before and there is a soundtrack but it is very much done to just set tone like you almost don't even notice Mm -hmm. the hunger game soundtrack but it is there but it's just done to set feel the whole time there are very obvious themes from the hunger games but the rest of the time like you almost don't even notice the soundtrack is there you just feel it um so he's definitely done some other just absolute, you know, knocked it out of the park. Hey, swing away. <laughs> I didn't even do it on purpose. I'm so sorry. I apologize for nothing. Dad jokes are forever. <laughs> they are mom jokes now. They are mom jokes. Um, all right. Well, so let's go ahead and wrap then. Um, that concludes our discussion of signs. Uh, today we talked about symbolism, both general and religious. We talked about setting tone with music. Um, we talked a bit about production and shot framing and the importance of using show, don't tell. Next week, we're going to be talking about Christopher Nolan's movie Inception, which is available to stream on HBO Max. Lots of great movies on HBO Max right now. All definitely. of our films have been HBO Max. How are they not hey, sponsoring Hey, I mean, when HBO, like when I finished the movie and HBO was like, hey, you might also like this movie. I take a look and I'm like, you're right. You I would also facts. like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the suggestion. Um, so definitely give that a watch if you haven't watched it recently, because I have some very interesting opinions that require you to remember what happened in the movie. Um which we're also doing because my mom suggested it and I was like, oh, that's cool. Okay, I can do Inception. She's like, oh, yeah, because I hated that movie. <laughs> oh, okay, okay mom. I was like, mom, really? And she's like, yeah, I want to know what you guys say about it because I can't stand that movie. And I was like, mm. I want mom's opinion. We need to record it. Interesting choice. I'm like, should we have mom as a guest star next week to talk about why she hated <laughs> Maybe. Inception? We need at least get notes I might have to. Like right. So, so, yeah, that's that's next week. So definitely tune in for that. 
Cinematic Pulse is edited and produced by Cherie Jackson. The episodes and theme are written and performed by yours truly. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find Cinematic Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Thank you so much for listening, because we just checked your Cinematic Pulse. Roll credits. Thank you.